This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good afternoon, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jane McAdam and I'm Director of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law here at UNSW. I would like to welcome you to this special event today by first acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land, the Bedigal people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are here with us today. Our university is situated near a number of areas of great and ancient significance, including an 8,000-year-old campsite around which the traditional owners of this area used to teach culture, history and how to live. It is therefore a most fitting place in which to welcome our guest of honour today, the Honourable Ahmed Hussain, Canada's Immigration Minister, um, with the official title of Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. Mr. Hassan is the Member of Parliament for the riding of York Southwestern. He is a lawyer and a social activist who has a proven track record of leadership and community empowerment. Mr. Hassan grew up in Somalia, moving to Canada in 1993 at the age of 16 and settling in Regent Park, a once troubled and isolated Toronto public housing area. He quickly gravitated towards public service and in 2002, he co-founded the Regent Park Community Council and was able to secure $500 million for a revitalisation project, all while ensuring that the interests of the area's nearly 15,000 residents were protected. Mr. Hassan served as the national president of the Canadian Somali Congress, a Somali community organisation that works with national and regional authorities to advocate on issues of importance to Canadians of Somali heritage and to strengthen civic engagement and integration. His results-driven reputation led to an invitation to join the Task Force for Modernising Income Security for Adults in the Toronto City Summit Alliance. In 2004, the Toronto Star recognised Mr Hassan as one of 10 individuals in Toronto to have made substantial contributions to the community. Having earned his Bachelor of Arts, majoring in history, from York University, in 2005 he started a law degree at the University of Ottawa, viewing it as a way to further push forward the issues about which he cared so much. He subsequently opened a legal practice focusing on immigration law and criminal cases, particularly for young offenders. Mr Hassan was appointed as Canada's Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship in January 2017 just as the Trump administration launched its travel ban on immigration from seven predominantly Muslim nations. I suspect that his legendary reputation to remain cool, calm and collected was a fortunate attribute to have at that time. In relation to Canada, Mr Hassan has said that we will continue to use immigration as a great system for increasing and growing our economy and contributing to our skills and our productivity but also making sure that we always have space for humanitarian obligations to the world, to make sure we provide a home for those who seek sanctuary from war, from persecution, from terrorism. Indeed, Canada is often held up as an example to the world as to how to welcome refugees and assist them to rebuild their lives in safety and with dignity. Since 1978, Canada has pioneered the very successful private sponsorship scheme for refugees which has helped over 280,000 people. This alone is a larger effort than the total government-run resettlement programs of any country outside North America and Australia. Canada's response to Syrian refugees in 2015 made headlines around the world, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau personally welcoming families at the airport and the country taking in 40,000 refugees within just over a year. As Mr Hassan himself has said, I happen to now lead the very department that I was once a client of. But I always tell people this. It really doesn't say that much about me. It says much more about Canada, that this is possible in this country. Minister Hassan, it is a great honour and a privilege to welcome you to UNSW, and I invite you to the podium.
thank you very much uh, for that uh, uh, very kind and generous welcome. It's an honor to uh, represent the Government of Canada and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on that visit here to Australia and New Zealand and uh, to be here in the uh, University of New South Wales. I've already met uh, a Canadian who is uh, making amazing contributions uh, to your institution. Um, the, the comment that you ended the introduction with is something that I truly believe in. Uh, you see this uh, every time. That uh, My story is amazing not because of its own value, but because it's so common in Canada. You see many, many newcomers who have uh, really added to the tapestry and the richness of Canadian society, whether it is creating jobs or adding to the social and cultural mix of our country. And I think that is the power of diversity. It's the power of a country that is open to, uh, to opening doors to people who are kind enough to share their talents with us and, and, and giving an opportunity to people to restart their lives. And I always say that that's because if you, apart from the indigenous peoples of Canada, in, in which we're engaged in a very national reconciliation process. Uh, the rest of Canada is inhabited by either the descendants uh, of immigrants or immigrants themselves. So Canadians deeply understand the positive role that immigrants and immigration has had on Canadian society. And uh, if you look at that modern, the history of modern Canada, it's very difficult to separate that history from the history of immigration to Canada. So you see waves and waves of people who come to our shores, either in search of protection or persecution. Uh, and you also see people who've come for, uh, for economic opportunity. And in both those cases, you see the, uh, the footprint that they've left in many parts of our country. And we haven't always gotten it right, uh, despite the really positive credibility that we have now with, with, with respect to welcoming others. We haven't always gotten it right. In the 1800s, there was a ship of, uh, of, uh, of people who were fleeing uh, uh, British India who, who landed in uh, British Columbia, in Western Canada. And they were fleeing the, uh, the first uh, war of independence uh, in India. And the, uh, the Canadian authorities sent them back many to their deaths. And in 1939, we had a, the MS St. Louis, which was a ship that came to Canada, full of Jewish refugees from Europe, uh, fleeing Nazi Germany. And they uh, were also turned back, and many, not all, but many died in the Holocaust. So uh, those lessons have stayed with Canadian policymakers uh, in terms of the responses that we've had over the years uh, to those seeking uh, protection from persecution. And occasionally, there are uh, leaders in Canada who forget that history and who demand that the government suspend our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the protections that, that we have in terms of due process for, uh, for people claiming asylum, for example. But uh, luckily for us, uh, so far we've held firm on the notion that we can both apply Canadian law to make sure that we respect Canadian law and uh, process everyone uh, fairly and equally, make sure that we protect the safety and security of Canadians, while at the same time staying true to our Geneva Conventions and our commitments that Canada has signed to make sure that people who are fleeing persecution and who claim asylum in our country have the opportunity, at least, to be given a fair hearing so that they can make their case. And uh, if they then are able to establish in front of an independent body uh, that they deserve refugee protection, then they get to stay. In addition to that, as has been mentioned, we have a very um, uh, long-standing government resettlement program for refugees that has been ongoing for many, many years. And uh, we usually rely on uh, the UNHCR to refer cases to us, but we still go through the security and health screening that is necessary before resettling those individuals to Canada. But the private sponsorship program is on top of that. It doesn't take away from those numbers. It's an additional program that enables 
a cha an outlet for the generosity of Canadians to be able to participate in the sponsorship of a refugee, a single refugee, or a refugee family. And that program really came about as a reaction to the Vietnamese boat uh, crisis in the 1970s. And since then, Canada has been able to resettle an additional 288,000 refugees through the private sponsorship program. And this program is uh, transformative not just for the refugees themselves, but also for the sponsors. And when the sponsors uh, sponsor a refugee family, for the most part, they find that the experience is very transformative for them. And although they're legally obligated to take care of that family or that individual for only one year, the relationships that they form usually last much longer than that. And again, although legally only the sponsors are obligated to take care of them, uh, we find that their neighbors and friends also take part in that uh, embrace of these refugees. And, and we find that those sponsors turn, turn around after that experience and become some of the biggest champions of refugees, because for them, refugees are no longer an abstract concept. They're real people who have become essentially part of their family. And my predecessor as Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship, when the Syrian Refugee Initiative was ongoing, used to say that he was the only immigration minister in the whole world who couldn't bring enough refugees to satisfy the Canadian demand for refugee sponsorship. So it shows you the impact that that private sponsorship program has had on Canadians, because uh, it wasn't limited to uh, small and medium-sized cities. It was and large cities was spread over to the small and the remote communities as well. Uh, the, the Syrian example is a good example because it couldn't have been done only by government. The government had promised, Prime Minister Trudeau had promised that if we were to get elected, we would bring 25,000 Syrian refugees. But at the end of that time period, we were able to bring 40,000. So the, the 15,000, uh, in addition to the 25,000, were privately sponsored. And that number is now up to 50,000. So a total of 50,000 Syrian refugees have been brought to Canada from November 4, <coughs> 2015 to now. But during the time period of the promise, the promise was to bring 25,000 Syrian refugees from November 4, 2015 to February 29, 2016. And again, my predecessor joked that. He said, you know, I'm glad it's a leap year because you know, the fact that it's very true, we could probably end up using that extra day to, to get to the target. And he jokingly said that, but actually when February 29th came around uh, is when the last flight came in uh, of the last family to, to fulfill the government promise. So we ended up actually needing that extra day after all. Um, the, 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 the second reason why Canada has been, uh, I think, successful in terms of the integration of newcomers is, is, the, is not just talking about it. A lot of times you'll hear uh, leaders talking about the importance of integration. Why are these people not integrated? These newcomers don't want to integrate. You know, we, we, these people are different from us. We can't have them, and so on and so forth, right? Well, here's the, the simple truth. Integration is a two-way two street. Yes, newcomers have to integrate into their new society, but the government and society have to invest in integration. They have to be serious about it. You can't demand integration of newcomers and ask them to learn the language and do all this and that if you're not willing to provide them the opportunities to do so. Uh, and I always use an example of a European country that uh, was complaining, that this one mayor was complaining about the fact that this minority of people in the city were simply not integrated. When uh, at the same time, for 15 years, uh, that same municipal government was denying this uh, religious minority uh, the opportunity to have their own cemetery. Mm -hmm. So how can you talk about integration when you're not offering the opportunities for people to feel part, to feel part of the society and part of uh, being, being welcome? Uh, this, the, the other secret to the Canadian example, and I think it's, it's true for many countries, including Australia, is that we assume that you know, all permanent newcomers to Canada, whether they're coming through the family, the reunification class, or the refugee class, or the economic class, that they're coming, that they, eventually be, that they will eventually become citizens. And that's really important, because in other parts of the world, that's not true. You could be 
a resident uh, for three generations with your family in some parts of the world, and you'll never become a citizen. Now, that does a lot for your sense of belonging and for your sense of attachment to that host community. And so we view in Canada that citizenship is the last but important final step towards true integration. Yes, some people choose not to take that final step uh, due to circumstances based on their country of uh, origin, and they feel that you know, if they become Canadian citizens, they'll lose their other passport and so on. That, that's, you know, that's personal considerations. But majority of the newcomers, 85% of the newcomers to Canada, choose to take that final step towards Canadian citizenship. 93% of newcomers to Canada acquire French or English fluency very quickly. Again, why is that? It's because we invest in language programs. We have, since we've gotten into government, we've increased the money for settlement and integration by 30%. So this year, for 2018-2019, we will invest over a billion dollars in settlement and integration services. These are language training, job supports, orientation programs, uh, referral services, uh, community programs to, to, to build social cohesion and, and, and settlement and integration and so on. So, so the outcomes that, that that people see and say, you know, wow, we really like the integration outcomes in Canada, we're very envious of that. It doesn't happen by magic. It happens because there was a policy decision to invest. And those investments, although can be quite costly, pay for themselves 10 times over. Because the faster you can enable a newcomer to restart their life and succeed, the faster that they can contribute to Canada. And that's the thinking behind that. Uh, the second reason for the openness to immigration is because of the economic case. In 1972, we had almost seven working Canadians supporting each retiree. Seven to one in 1972. By 2012, <coughs> that ratio had dropped to, two, uh, to four to one. So by 2012, four working Canadians were supporting each retiree. If we are not ambitious in Canada in immigration in terms of raising the, the numbers, continuously, by 2035, which is not that far away, uh, that ratio will come down to two to one. We will only have two working Canadians supporting each retiree. Now I ask you, I don't know how much you know about Canada's generous social programs, how will we maintain our universal health care system, our pension plan, okay, the Canadian public pension plan, our infrastructure programs, our other generous social programs, we're thinking and considering a national pharmacare uh, program to help uh, seniors and others with the cost of medication. How will we do that with a ratio of two to one? It's going to be very challenging. So one of the ways to address that gap, it's not the only way, but one of the ways is to uh, be ambitious in immigration and realize that immigration is not just about uh, addressing labor market shortages and skill shortages and providing protection to those who seek it, but also to, ad to address our own demographic challenges in Canada. Uh, and that ratio is part of that. In some parts of Canada, the demographic challenge is already there. It's very acute. In, in Eastern Canada, in one of the provinces there, Newfoundland and Labrador, for every 100 workers that join the workforce, we have 125 that retire out of the workforce. Now, how will you address that gap of 25 people? In New Brunswick, the population of New Brunswick is five years older than the rest of, of Canada. Uh, the Eastern Canada, in general, is facing a lot of challenges with respect to uh, not so much attracting skilled immigrants, but keeping them. So we have uh, embarked on a, a very creative program called the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program. It's a three-year pilot. And it's meant to really address that, to give Eastern Canada more numbers, and also to work on retention. So uh, the, the, the key there is to, to have employers lead the, the settlement and integration process so that they think not only about the skilled immigrant, but also their family. So when you invite the skilled immigrant to come to Eastern Canada, and then you help the spouse start a business or get a second job, and you enroll the kids in school, it's very unlikely for that skilled immigrant to then move to Toronto, Vancouver, or Montreal, which is usually what happens. Uh, the 
Second big play we're making for <coughs> is on talent. We've introduced the global skill strategy, which is attracting a lot of highly talented people from other parts of the world. You see individuals making decisions to move to Canada from the United States simply because of immigration. They're saying we feel more welcome in Canada. We, uh, we will get permanency, whereas in the United States we'll, we'll continue having a visa system. But in Canada, at least there's a pathway to citizenship. And so I'd rather move there. Uh, you're seeing uh, the, the people making decisions based on their children and their families feeling more accepted and welcomed. And so researchers taking and innovators taking a pay cut to move from other parts of the world where immigrants and newcomers are less accepted to come to Canada because they feel that uh, the environment around the ecosystem around the community is more accepting of newcomers. So they're, they're thinking about the future and they're choosing Canada because of that immigration uh, system. And so we view that as an immigration advantage. We, we view it as a, as, a, as, as a competitive advantage. In a, in a world where mobile, uh, talent is more mobile than ever before, um, the more welcoming you are, the more talent you will uh, be able to receive. And so as a result of the introduction of the Global Skills Strategy last June, since last June to now, we've, we've attracted 10,000 highly skilled individuals to come into Canada and, and, and choose to, uh, to, to, to come in and, and, and lend us their skills and benefit uh, Canadian businesses and, and grow our economy. Um, Coming back to the, to, the, to the humanitarian aspect of things, from time to time, we don't just uh, rely on the UNHCR to uh, refer cases. We also uh, have public policies that respond to, to immediate and urgent needs. So for example, um, the Parliament of Canada uh, in 2016 passed a resolution uh, asking the government of Canada to respond to provide protection to the survivors of ISIS atrocities, Daesh atrocities, mainly women and, and young girls, in mainly the Yazidi community, but also other religious minorities in northern Iraq. And so we responded with a special program where we literally airlifted uh, those survivors of Daesh atrocities. But we did it in a very paced manner. We could have brought them all at once. But we, we wanted to make sure that these highly vulnerable individuals who had survived unimaginable trauma had the right supports, had the right psychological and, and physical and other resources around them once they landed in Canada. So we paced the arrivals to make sure that, and we spread them across uh, Canada, across the country, to make sure that each landing would correspond with a supportive community that had the right number of services to be able to then give a chance to these individuals to be able to, re to start their long journey to recover and restart their lives. And I think that's a program that I'm most proud of because, again, it, it's, it, it speaks to Canada's uh, willingness to stand up uh, in today's uh, global atmosphere to provide protection to the most vulnerable and, and invest money and political capital and, and, and go through great lengths. I mean, our, our staff had to, to operate in northern Iraq at a time when the security situation was, was very fluid uh, around Mosul and, and other places. But we did it, and we did it very well, and uh, now they're, they're in, uh, in Canada. Uh, and the, the, the government commitment was to provide protection to around 1,300 people. But there's also the private-sponsored program in which we've been encouraging private sponsors and organizations to expedite, to, uh, to consider uh, survivors of Daesh, and we expedite those, uh, those applications. So th that's ongoing, but in terms of the commitment we made to, to Parliament, that promise has been kept uh, under very difficult uh, conditions. At one point, um, northern Iraq was so bad that the flights were canceled, and so we had to uh, regroup and figure out how to uh, get them out and continue the program. But thankfully, uh, those people are now here. Uh, they're now in Canada, and I've visited many communities across the country, and they're doing very well. They're being supported by, by uh, members of the diaspora, but also the larger community. Um, 
I will talk about the, I'll come back to the private sponsorship program because it also has an international component. So uh, the challenge now is to respond to the, and I think many of you know this, is to respond to the largest refugee movements since the Second World War. The, the, the need and the desire for refugee protection is, is very high. And the challenge now is how do you respond to that? Now, in, in the case of many industrialized countries, and the resettlement numbers that they showcase, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket. It doesn't really address the, the need based on the, on, the, on the numbers. So what more can countries do if they're not willing to massively increase the resettlement numbers, which I know in many countries is just not feasible? What more can we do? Well, one of the things that we can do is help the countries in the region. The vast majority of refugees do not want to resettle in a faraway place. Contrary to, public op uh, contrary to popular opinion, refugees would like to return home. If that's not possible, they, they would prefer to stay in the region close by. Because they have that hope that they would, go, they would go back to their home country or, or their hometown at some point when things get better. So the chances of that happening are, are, are easier and, and higher if you're in the region. Very few actually opt for resettlement. And the Syrian example is, 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 is a good one. You know, the, the conflict started in 2011. You didn't really see an exodus to Europe until 2015. So for the first four years, they were in the region. They were hoping that somehow Syria would get better. And it's when they started losing hope around the five-year mark is when they started heading to do But even then, the numbers who have fled to other parts of the, of the world versus the ones who have stayed in the Middle East, you can't compare them. And the same goes for uh, African refugees. So the question becomes, how can we in industrialized countries, how can we better help countries in the region that are way more generous than us? So take the case of Jordan, a country of 9 million people, already short of water and other resources, have agreed to take in 1.2 million Syrian refugees and hundreds of, of thousands of Iraqi refugees. Now that kind of volume coming into Jordan puts challenges the resiliency of Jordan. So it's incumbent on us to make sure that Jordan, because they've made the right decision to, be, to provide protection to those who are seeking protection, which is consistent with our values. The least we can do is help Jordan remain resilient and sustainable in their approach. And one of the ways that they've been able to do that is I think increasingly you're seeing an overlap between refugee policy and international development policy. So in the case of Jordan, for example, Jordan is known for a very healthy and long-standing uh, long, uh, textile industry. So Jordan uh, reached an agreement with the EU and the United States, and I believe Canada is involved as well, uh, that, at, at least in the case of the EU, that if certain Jordanian textile factories hire a minimum percentage of refugees, those products from only those factories will have preferential market access to the EU market. Now that changes the mindset because it takes, it, it makes, first of all, it creates jobs for Jordanians and the refugees. Secondly, it changes the views of Jordanians, if any, if, the, if any of them viewed refugees as a burden, that changes it. If they start to see refugees as an ally in their own development. Because, because of these refugees and because of their generosity, they're getting market access for their products. That's, I think, one of the ways to go. And it's much, much uh, less expensive for uh, Western wealthier countries to do that, to help the Jordans. Uh, Uganda is another country that's amazingly open-minded. I was there a few months ago. About, yeah, sorry, uh, less than three months ago. Um, whereby they <coughs> put people in camps. You come in, they offer you land. They offer you a piece of land to farm and, and to be self-sufficient. 
At the same time, uh, they, there's freedom of movement for refugees. They give refugees work permits. They're very, very progressive. For a country that has very little uh, in terms of you know, uh, uh, budgetary room to do so, but they, they're, they're making that choice. And again, what can we do to help countries like Uganda to, to succeed in that policy? and offer an alternative to putting people in camps for 30 years and wasting away their time. One program that I, I think we should support and I think really offers a way out is a, a program that I saw in Northwest Kenya, in a very remote part of Kenya. A part of Kenya that uh, would normally not be developed anytime soon. So there was a camp there. <coughs> And the Kenyan government for many years had resisted sort of integrating these refugees into the local community or offering them some sort of pathway to permanent residency or citizenship. And what happened after a while is the, the World Bank came with, together with UNHCR and other bodies and they did a study on the economic impact that this camp and their residents were having on the local community. Just by being there, so the, the, the camp residents were buying things. They were, uh, they were buying uh, airtime for cell phones and things like that. And this study, which was pretty detailed, showed the Kenyan government that this camp was, had, was injecting $62 million a year into the local economy. So the Kenyans were floored by this. They couldn't believe that. They, they, they thought this was great, and they, had, they didn't really, really know. So they were encouraged by those numbers to be more flexible in terms of um, allowing movement and so on. So next, what happened next? Well, what happened next is there was a pilot program there that allowed, that gave, so usually, so the UNHCR did a study on this. 90% of camp, there's 10% of refugee camp residents who will never leave the camp. They either uh, they have their own uh, limitations, or they are female heads of households who are who are looking at who are looking for, uh, at the welfare of a number of children. So they they are kind of limited in terms of their mobility. But the UNHCR found that about ninety percent of camp residents can be transitioned out of the camp. So the first ten percent are transitioned right away. These are the most educated people who, when a camp is established. The UNHCR immediately hires them to become the translators and the uh, registration uh, folks and who do biometrics and so on. So 10% are already transitioned. But the, re the, the remaining 90%, 80% of them can be transitioned out with a little bit of help in two streams. So in this case, what they did is they offered uh, two streams to the refugees. One is vocational training for six months in a trade, and then uh, that's your ticket out. or a business, so you get a little bit of money, about $500, to start a small shop that sells food. And it, they also reformed the UNHCR rations, food ration system. So instead of getting really bad food that is uniform, that really is not nutritious, and it costs a lot of money because there's a lot of leakage, they moved to a card system where you would get a card with some money, and you would actually go out into the community and you would buy what you want. And the people selling the food would be the refugees who got that startup money. And um, the ones who got the vocational training, they were encouraged to move out of the camp and build their own homes outside in a, in a settlement 10 kilometers away. Now, this was great for the Kenyan government because the local community is very nomadic. They didn't settle. And the Kenyan government had been trying for many years to have that community uh, enroll their children in school and build uh, permanent homes and so on. So, so the rule was that, uh, uh, w so when the UNHCR built schools there, they, you know, half of the spaces would be for local children, half, half would be for refugees. And the new settlement that was built was really built for both <coughs> refugees and the local population. And the local population would pay the refugees who were trained uh, to build them homes. And so you have this new city that's emerging in the middle of nowhere with these services and these business opportunities. And I, uh, we met people there who uh, a year ago were in the camp who are now successfully in business or who are settled outside uh, of the camp. So that's a model that's, a f that's fantastic because they're, 
They are now active members of the community. They have legal status in Kenya. The Kenyan government is happy because there's economic activity there and job creation. We're happy because we don't have to support 90% of the cash. It's cheaper for the Canadian government to support that. You, you can now take 90% of the money you are spending there and give it to other refugees. So that's the kind of thinking we have to think about. If we, in many industrialized countries, are closing our doors to refugees and saying, well, no, we can't handle this, and we don't want this, you know, we don't want this, and we don't want refugees, and we don't want uh, these numbers. Okay, well, fine. Help people on the ground. Help people in the regions. It's less costly. Maybe it's less costly politically as well, and uh, and it serves the purpose of really uh, bringing dignity back to people who have lost it through that refugee experience. And 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 the camp model does not work. I have seen it. There are people who. Uh, Three generations in a camp, they're wasting away, they don't have educational rights, they don't have, they can't work, they don't really have any outlet for their creativity, for their entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, that's not the way to go, and it's very expensive to maintain, and uh, it doesn't, it, it breeds a lot of resentment from the host community as well, because those camps use a lot of local resources, people chop wood for firewood and so on. Uh, so that's not the way to go, and I, I think we have to increasingly start to look at um, international development funds and policy and leverage that uh, towards uh, refugee policy. One of the ways in which Canada is doing this is through, um, uh, and this is a potential that we could certainly explore, is the G7 uh, countries met in Canada this year, in Quebec, in Charlevoix, and they raised $3.8 billion for girls' education. Now, they, they raised the money, but they haven't decided which girls are going to be educated with that money. So obviously, some of that money, could, there could be a good case that could be made to harness some of that money or to access some of that money on behalf of uh, girl refugees, female, female uh, adults <coughs> and, and, and young girls who are in refugee situations. We know uh, in Canada, we've reoriented our whole uh, development policy to focus on women and young girls because we know that when conflicts happen, they're disproportionately victimized. They're the ones who suffer disproportionately from violence and from hunger and from disease and from everything else. So we are, we are focusing on that and I think this is a, a neat way to also engage with that. The, the $3.8 billion, Canada's share of that is about $400 million. It's, you know, we're talking about a good, a good amount of, of money that could be redeployed for that. But the second way to do that is to also target the private sector. And this is where I, I, I appeal to you. I appeal to you to think about this. Many, many private sector companies can include refugees in their manufacturing process or in their value chains. There's absolutely no reason why not to do that. And it's not an act of charity. It's actually, it makes business case. Uh, there was a study done in the United States that showed that companies that hire refugees have less turnover, they have more employee loyalty, they have a better social brand, because wouldn't you like a company that hires refugees? And also, and overall uh, made 11% more money than the next company that didn't hire refugees. So there's a business case to be made here. And in the case of companies that have done that, uh, their experience has been nothing but positive. And I've, I've met a number of companies <coughs> that have done that. And this is a really dignifying way to, to help refugees because you're not giving them charity, you're giving them a job. They're working and they're earning and supporting themselves. So uh, I, I know that IKEA, the IKEA, IKEA Foundation has a pilot program in two countries, Ethiopia and Jordan, but there is a push to continue to do this and this is something that I believe Australian private companies can be part of. So we have to think beyond the NGO sector, although that's a key part of this. We have to think beyond government. We also have to think within government how to utilize uh, international development dollars, but also the private sector. Uh, last but not least, uh, I'll end by saying that uh, the case for diversity is that diversity is a source of strength. When you have international students in a classroom, they enrich that classroom. They bring different perspectives. They bring different experiences. Uh, and, and they add to that, to the, to the thought process of that classroom in a way that wouldn't happen if there were no international students in that classroom. 
You could say the same about a country. The more diverse a country is, the more open it is to, to, uh, to, 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 to different perspectives, but also to, to connections to other parts of the world. And one of the things that we understand in Canada is that diversity is a source of strength for a country of 37 million people that needs to trade with others so that we can maintain our standard of living and our productivity levels. And diversity enables us to do that. I, I, I think of the international student from China who came to study in my home province of Ontario. He graduated from university, decided to stay and work in, in Canada, then started his own solar <coughs> manufacturing company, then used his own uh, social networks to export those solar panels back to his home region of China. Now, that is a part of the world that, you know, his particular region, that export market that he opened up is, some, is, a, is a plus for Canada. Uh, Canadians, uh, you know, find, uh, he, he was able to create jobs and prosperity for Canadians as a result of uh, opening up that export market. So that, the, the case for diversity is clear. Diversity should be seen as a source of strength, not as a threat. And the experiences that we've had with it shows that it is an advantage. Immigration is an advantage. When you are more welcoming to people in a global atmosphere in which talent is very mobile, if I'm a talented individual and I, I try country X and country X is not as welcoming as country Y, I'm going to go to country Y and country X will be the loser of my talent. So talent is more mobile than ever. Investment is more mobile than ever. People want to go to where they're accepted and included. And I'll end by saying that in Canada, we've decided that in a world where people are, countries are closing their doors more than ever to uh, talent, to skills, to yes, to even people who are seeking protection, we've taken the opposite approach and we've increased our numbers and we're saying yes to people who are coming to, uh, to share their skills with us and we'll always have a space in our hearts and in our homes for those who are seeking protection. As, as one of my good friends says, diversity is a fact. We can't get away from it. But inclusion is a choice and we've decided to be inclusive. Thank you very much. because uh, people were just putting money in a bank account uh, and, and the, the economic activity outcomes that were promised were not happening. So the previous government discontinued that. I'm not philosophically opposed to it, but I, I've asked the proponents of that program to sell, to, to make their case to me. And if they make a good case, I'm, I'm open to it. But I haven't seen anything convincing so far. In terms of the entrepreneurship, there's two ways to come to Canada through that. One is the, it's, it's, a, it's a small category in our immigration system called the self-employed category. So if you have a very, uh, very thriving business uh, and you, you know, you're self-employed and you hire, you know, uh, uh, and you can apply through that system. 
The other one is the startup visa program, which is a permanent residency stream for promising startups. So any promising startup in the world that we identify through referrals from the industry, they can come to Canada and we give permanent residency to the owner, their family, as well as the workers. And the, the idea is to go from the $5 million company to the $100 million company. So we're, we're hoping that you will come and then scale up in Canada. So those are the, the two streams. Oh, hi, Minister. My name is Esther. I'm from Settlement Services International here in Sydney. I can't tell you how it was totally inspirational to speak to you all. Um, as a long kind of standing activist. I just wanted to ask you, your thinking around population policy. So in Australia, we've kind of in the last couple of weeks, especially kind of heightened our attention on taking a broader approach to population. But what seems to happen is immigration kind of becomes a central um, point of that conversation rather than having a broader conversation. So we're really interested to see how Canada's looking at kind of framing population and immigration's part in that conversation. Uh, yes, so uh, I think that uh, we are facing, the challenges we face in terms of dem demographics are very similar in, in many uh, industrialized countries. It's, it's low birth rates, a high uh, you know, uh, aging population, um, an unwillingness by the local population to do some of the work in some of the sectors. When you combine all those three, you really start to see, especially in some parts of, of our countries, a, a real uh, desire for people. And, and, the, and I believe the, the subjective feelings around immigration sometimes gets in the way of the objective facts that you need people to come and address these challenges. And so, I, I, and that's where I think leadership uh, makes a difference. So at that point, at that point, <laughs> if you're a leader, you have, two, you have two choices. You can either play up to the anxieties of the people and take advantage of their fear as a way to get into office, or you can go the harder route, which is make the case for immigration. Make the case for the benefits of the immigration, the needs, and also um, really, uh, encourage the employers to come out of the shadows and, and make that case with you because employers will quietly come and tell us, look, you know, I need, I need workers. My industry really needs thousands of workers. But they wouldn't be publicly going out there and saying, you know, um, I recently heard that in Canada we need 50,000 truck drivers. 50,000. Just in that one industry. But, but you don't hear the... Canadian Truck Driving is the, the, the Canadian Truckers Association, for example, coming out and saying, you know, we need immigration because we are short 50,000. So I think, <coughs> because it's, it shouldn't just be government that's saying these things, it should be the, the private sector and the, and the public sector and, and, and everyone else making the case. Because this is real and the numbers don't lie. The, 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 the worst thing that you can do with respect to this, instead of dealing with that, is to to create anxiety in people and say, you know, we don't want these newcomers and use that as a way to get in. But that, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau always says, fear doesn't create a job. Um, I'm uh, Sean Cameron from Talent Beyond Boundaries and uh, we, we work uh, in Canada uh, here. Uh, joining up the private sector uh, in, in destination countries like Australia and Canada with skilled refugees who are still located in temporary locations such as Jordan and Lebanon. One of the problems that it, we find is the an employer meets a candidate and says, yes, this is the guy for me, I will hire, I'd like to hire that person. Then they, the next question is, well, when can I get them? And if you say three to six months, that's okay. If you say 18 months to two years, they, that doesn't work. And I just wonder, I'd be interested in your ideas on that. Um, so under the Canadian uh, Constitution, you cannot force someone, uh, even a newcomer, to live in a particular part of Canada. You can't. It's legally possible. But what you can do is you can incentivize. So under the system, so in Atlantic Canada, for example, so we've introduced a new program. So we, we will say, look, uh, it normally takes... 12 months or more to process 
your, your, your case for a provincial nominee program, which is a program we, we give each and every province in Canada and territory an allocation, numbers, a s number of spaces that they can use whichever way they want every year. So if a particular province gets 2,000 a year, they can use all 2,000 spaces for truck drivers or nurses. It's really up to them. That process usually takes between 12 months or more. But we can tell the same person, hey, why don't you try the Atlantic program? Because that program, in, because it's Atlantic Canada, the process is faster. It's only six months. And they get a break on the uh, labor market test and all that. Because we understand that Atlantic Canada is, is more, the needs there are more acute than the rest of Canada. So there's programming to incentivize that. One of the things that I am thinking about or that it's still early days is a rural immigration pilot program that really addresses the needs of rural Canada to, uh, to harness immigration because they don't, a lot of times they lose out to the big cities. But it has a second uh, objective to it. I believe that the more rural Canada benefits from immigration, the more support they'll have for immigration broadly. And that's something that the Syrian Refugee Initiative did because the numbers were so big that they were spread over to smaller communities and, and some of the most ardent uh, people who were demanding more refugees were some of the smaller communities because they saw the benefits. Schools that were about to be closed suddenly were thriving with the noises of children because of the influx of, of these newly arrived refugees. And they're doing very well. The cohort of Syrian refugees, because of our investments in extra uh, language spaces and so on, their trajectory is very similar to previous waves of refugees. So <coughs> when people tell you refugees can't make it, they don't bring any skills, that's not true. In fact, we have a refugee family, um, the Haddads, in eastern Canada, they were resettled as privately sponsored refugees in less than a year. They were chocolatiers in Syria. And they restarted their business. And in the first year, they hired 100 Canadians. Now they've expanded uh, to, to, to many parts of the country. And it's, it's a very neat story. And you see a lot of that. I, I, I went to a soap manufacturing uh, <laughs> facility run by Syrian refugees who used to be soap makers in, in, uh, in Syria. And you, you see this all the time. It's <coughs> fascinating. I uh, remember sitting at a UN panel in New York, and there was a European minister who was railing against refugees. He said, you Canadians don't get it. You know, refugees have no skills. They don't bring anything. And I was so embarrassed, and someone pointed out to me and said, you know, the Canadian minister was And he was shocked, because I didn't fit into that. Uh, you think a refugee could be... Uh, more hands going up every time. Minister, would you like me to take a couple of questions together? No, no, no. Or just one at a time, all right. So, uh, yes, we really Hi, uh, my name is Jordi. I'm from the Human Rights Law Center. You spoke about migrants and skilled migrants, particularly bringing families and workers with them. I'm just wondering what your approach, what Canadian approach is to refugee family uh, reunification yeah. and what that practice looks like. There's a one year window. So, once you're accepted as a, first of all, for the Resettled refugees, once you have been selected to come to Canada, you, you obviously have listed your dependents, so they come with you. Uh, if you're disconnected and you register them and then you come to Canada, you can sponsor them in a one-year window while you're still a, re a resettled refugee. Um, if you're an asylum seeker who's been accepted by the Immigration Refugee Board, you, you have a one-year window to resettle them. Uh, if you miss that one-year window, uh, you can, again, uh, sponsor them after you become a permanent resident or after you become a Canadian citizen at, at any point that you like. Hi, Minister. I'm actually Canadian. I'm an international student studying at University of Law. And every time I tell someone here I'm Canadian, people tell me how lucky I am. They <laughs> 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 love Justin Trudeau. And <laughs> <laughs> flattering and a source of pride, but at the same time, I know our country isn't perfect, um, particularly our, the global shift towards anti-immigration, the rise of the far right, and Canada hasn't been spared. That's our, right. The Premier of Ontario yes. was partly elected on an anti-immigration platform. So what can Canadians, or just in general, 
how can we change our cultural attitudes towards that? Very good. That's a really good point. We're not immune to this anti-immigrant rhetoric. It's coming. Uh, what we've done is we've responded by doubling down on the numbers, increasing the numbers, making the case. Um, I, we recently launched a campaign called uh, Why Immigration Matters across the country. For a long time in Canada, we've been complacent because we've uh, thought that we've emphasized, I shouldn't use the word complacent, we've kind of emphasized why as a society we should be welcoming to newcomers, what adjustments we need to make to, to do this or that. We haven't articulated frequently enough what newcomers do for Canada, how they revitalize communities, how they rejuvenate local economies and so on. So, so this campaign is about telling the second half of the narrative. And I've been traveling across uh, Canada, and many others have been doing that, to, to, to spread that message so that Canadians uh, really understand how critical uh, it is that we have immigration. Uh, one of the ways, so, so the private sponsorship program is about increasing the resettlement numbers. And one of the ways Canada is contributing to the shortage of the resettlement numbers is to export the PSR program to other countries. So now the UK has a private sponsorship program. Uh, we, we work with their officials, and there's a pilot program now to become permanent. The Germans have a program now, model of the Canadian program. The, the New Zealanders have a pilot program for families. They're testing it out. I know Australia is looking at this as well. And three uh, South American countries uh, are looking at it. So this is the Canadian sort of contribution to, the, to try to increase the resettlement spaces. And we've also produced uh, a how-to guide for civil society to take this on. Yeah, my name's Nick. I'm a journalist with SBS News, which is one of the public uh, media companies in Australia. You've been hiding all these. I've been hiding. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been more careful. I'm just wondering, do you have any observations on Australia's immigration policies and Australia's refugee policies, or, and maybe some of our more controversial ones, offshore places? What, from an outside perspective, and obviously government has a different sort of take on. Uh, Immigration to us. What's what's your take on Australia? Well, there's a, first of all, there's a lot. To be fair, there's a lot of similarities. The, you know, the economic, the express entry, the point system that we have. We learned that from Australia. Uh, you know, all the economic programs, the family reunification. We always exchange information. Uh, I'm not going to comment on the asylum policies of Australia because we have different geographies and different challenges. And, and you know, in Canada, we have three oceans and the United States border. Uh, so we've been, uh, we haven't faced the same challenges as some European countries have over the years. Uh, now you're seeing uh, an increase. So last year we saw uh, an increase in asylum seekers coming through the US border. And this year the numbers are down, but uh, it is a challenge. Our asylum system um, is, is experiencing pressure from the, from the dramatic increase in volumes last year. There's a backlog that has built up. And that has called, it has, it has called for some, it has resulted in some people on the, on the right, on the far right, saying that, uh, you know, these people shouldn't come in. And so there's some noise there, but we've, we've resisted that. We've said, no, Canada uh, will uh, remain true to its international obligations. We will not return people to torture and persecution. We will at least give asylum seekers an opportunity to make their case, and if they uh, make their case, they get to get our protection. If not, they're removed from Canada. And that's the law, and we will uh, remain true to that. Hi, uh, I'm Ross Granado. I'm a student at UNSW. Uh, I just want to know, what advice would you give to sort of mark, uh, the younger generations as to how to resolve asylum seeker problems and refugee problems? That's a tough one. I think that I think it's, it's, a, it's just a question of, start, the starting point has to be that refugees are, are as diverse as any of us. Uh, the refugees are not monolithic. Uh, so spreading that message, refugees are not passive recipients of aid. They are active people who, given the opportunity, can succeed like other 
migrants. And, and I think that's really an important point to make. And that is why our settlement and integration programs in Canada don't distinguish between refugee, family, class, or economic. Any newcomer can access them. And it doesn't, it doesn't distinguish between that. Because they, they all have a contribution to make, and the, the, the statistics prove that. Yes, refugees take longer <coughs> to integrate, but that's because they've been through some difficulties. Uh, I remember being interviewed by a German a media outlet, and they said, you know, when you're selecting refugees from camps, do you just bring the skilled ones? I said, no, we bring everybody. I said, okay, but... You know, the older refugees, do you leave them behind? I said, no, they're refugees. <laughs> and they just kept asking this, you know, what about the disabled refugees? Do you leave them there? I said, no, they're refugees. <laughs> so we had this, it's like we couldn't understand each other. Because for them, it's, uh, it's very othering of, of the other. These are real <coughs> people who could end up in a situation, who, you know, outside their control. They don't have, uh, they, they didn't choose to, to flee their country. You know, and, they would, of course, prefer to be in their own communities. Uh, one aspect of migration beyond refugees that I think is proven by the Canadian, we, we have some agreements with, with countries in the hemisphere to provide seasonal workers who come and make a little bit of money in the summer, uh, mainly in the agricultural sector, and pump that money back into their communities. One of the things that we've learned from that program is that migrants, Economic migrants, if given legal pathways to our job markets, will not overstay and will not claim asylum. They go, they come back, they go because they know in the next year they'll have a chance to come back. And some of these programs are 50 years old and we've never had somebody overstay. So I think as part of this global response to this global migration crisis, one of the things that we should consider as partners, Australia and Canada and others, is to open up our labor markets a little bit more, give people legal pathways. Because when you do that, they will not avail themselves of people smugglers and criminal gangs who take advantage of them, uh, who prey on them. When, when, you, when you give people legal access, they will not go underground. So I think that's one of the things that uh, we have to consider. And you were saying, what can you do? Well, you can support the Global Compact on Migration. Because Canada, uh, ca the Canadian contribution to that migration is to call for that, to more opening up of the pathways, uh, having common standards <coughs> on the treatment of, of migrants and their dignity, for example, child migrants and so on. So Canada has been promoting other countries to come to its viewpoint about that and get them to sign that agreement in December. Minister, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time, and mindful of your other commitments, we'll have to draw it to a close. But thank you very much for your engaging questions, and to you, of course, for your, um, as everyone has said, inspiring and refreshing remarks. I'd now like to invite the Dean of the Faculty of Law, Professor George Williams, to perform the Well, thank you, Jane. And uh, my job, indeed, is to provide a vote of thanks. And as the Minister has mentioned, there are many similarities between Canada and Australia. Certainly our political institutions, our culture, our demography, the fact that both nations are built upon the achievements of immigrants. And uh, in the case of Australia, we have now have one in two Australians who either were born overseas themselves or who have a parent born overseas, something of which we're all too aware, if only because of the number of our politicians. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, of course, not everything is the same. And uh, this is where, when we talk about how we as a nation treat people fleeing persecution, that we have these stark, stark differences between us and Canada. And it's almost as if there's been a fork in the road somewhere, that Canada has gone on the path that Minister Hassan has described, and we have gone a dark and inhumane path. And to be frank, a path that makes no economic sense. And I think it's something that perhaps we need to reflect upon more as Australians to ask how is it that we ended up on this very different journey to our Canadian cousins who, despite everything, share so much with us in terms of culture and elsewhere. And given that, Minister, it really was a breath of fresh air to hear you today. I mean, we have a media saturated with so much negativity in this area. And for people, many of whom in this room, who argue for the rights of refugees, argue for a humane path, it really was inspiring to hear a different voice, a different perspective on these things from such a senior member of government in Canada. 
And it wasn't just the compassion, it wasn't just the fact you were talking about a humane, sustainable approach, but it was the fact that you had such pragmatic economic arguments that said this is an approach that makes sense when it comes to growing a nation's economy. This is an approach that makes sense when it comes to jobs, to building economic prosperity. And of course these are exactly the sort of arguments that can and should resonate in Australia. Yet it's really striking that these are not the arguments that we are hearing in Australia in the same way. So my reaction to hearing you was like others have already said, this was an inspiring talk, but I must admit it also tinged with sadness for me because this should have been a talk that we do here in Australia. It's sort of leadership we do need in this country. A talk that does make economic sense as well as sense about treating people with humanity. And it's clear that we have a lot to learn from our Canadian cousins when it comes to our own refugee policy. And I think here you talked also about the role of government, but also the need for others to act, to lead, to listen. And I think here universities and our students have a special role to play, along with our partners, many of whom are here today. And certainly from the law school's perspective and the university's perspective, I'm really proud that we host the Andrew and Renata Centre for International Refugee Law. Our mission is to be our world-leading research centre that listens and understands what's happening elsewhere to help Australia and other countries chart a sound economic course that treats people with humanity. And I think there's a lot that we at the Cal Law Centre can learn and will take away from this talk to really redouble our efforts to make sure that the next time, or at least sometime in the future, we have an Australian minister talking, that perhaps the talk is a little more like yours today. <laughs> <laughs>